calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, I'm Keegan. And I'm Madigan. And you're listening to Your, Your Angry, Angry Neighborhood, Neighborhood Feminist. Feminist. This is a podcast where we explore the world through our own personal feminist perspective. Hi, Keegan. Hi, Madigan. How are you tonight? Uh, I'm doing okay. You know, I actually took today to um, do some self-care. I had listened to the Daily Zeitgeist and Miles was talking about an article he'd read about crisis fatigue and how like we're really just not wired. We're wired to deal with these instances of major stress in very small bursts. Uh, and so when it's something like this where you need kind of like sustained momentum, uh, it can be very difficult to maintain focus because your body just like wants to shut down. Right. So I decided to kind of like give myself a little bit of a break today, still do kind of the things that I needed to do, but also take some self-care and go sit by the pool to recharge because this thing that we're doing, this movement that we're all involved in right now, it's not going to be over in a week. It's going to be an ongoing thing. So right. we all need to really prioritize our mental health so that we can stay in this fight for as long as necessary. Exactly. That's a big thing I've been hearing. You know, it's a marathon, not a sprint. So it's important for us to be able to stay healthy for the longevity of it. So, you know. And don't feel guilty because I know that that's a big issue. Like that's an issue that I'm having with myself is like, Anytime I take any time for myself, I'm feeling like I'm not doing enough. Right. So, well, then that's something good for you to work on then. Yeah. Just kind of like I was working on not going out to protest, you know, and finding other ways to do it and not feel guilty about it, you know. So we wanted to have a little intro here for all of you because we are not going to be posting a new episode this week. Instead, uh, we had had another episode idea in mind and I think we had both done quite a bit of research and were ready to record and then yesterday Keegan and I spoke about uh, the topic just not being the right time like there's just more important things for us to be discussing so we decided that we would take two old episodes two parts of old episodes and combine them together into one episode so it's going to be uh, each of us are going to tell a feminist fave story 
of a black member of the LGBTQ plus community. So mine will be from way back, almost in the beginning of the podcast, Audrey Lord. And I've got to say, I'm working on the sound and I'm going to have Max look at it too. My sound is so bad in the beginning. It's yeah, really I mean, bad. There's definitely a learning curve. We had a learning curve with our sound and it's still not up to where we want it to be. But it is interesting to hear the difference like as we grow. Yeah, it's, uh, it's horrible. So I, I'm going to do my best to make it sound really good. Uh, right now, it doesn't sound perfect. And then we're also going to uh, re-show you Keegan's telling of Polly Murray, which I believe you told that story in 2019, like fairly recently, right? Oh, yes. It was recently. It was 2020, I think. It was in January oh, was or so. That's yeah. funny. So we've got one from a long time ago and one that's really recent, but both really relevant to today. Uh, they're both very inspiring women. And yeah. Yeah, because usually in June, as you who have been listening for a while know, we do Pride Month. All of our episodes are generally focused on stories of the LGBTQ community. And we didn't want to take away from Pride Month, but we also wanted to make sure that we were putting our focus on Black lives and Black stories, because right now, I feel like that is where it needs to be. So we didn't want to do anything kind of last minute, throw a topic together for you. But we wanted to make sure that you had something this week and something that was on topic. Uh, We've also, if you check out our social media accounts, um, I went through and found all of the episodes that we have done that center black stories uh, or systemic racism And we have compiled a list of those episodes for you if you would like to reference that and go back and listen to any of those episodes. They are available for you. Yeah, I've actually noticed recently that there's been a few people who have asked if we've covered certain things and I've been able to reference some old episodes. So that's good. Always go back in the archives and check it out because maybe we covered it a long time ago or something very similar. So I'm glad that, you know, you made this list of relevant episodes right now I think it's a cool thing that we could do in the future too just for people for reference if there's a general topic that you want this is where to find it so hopefully you all find it useful and enjoy this re-release of an episode kind of rage on on. so with that being said I switched over to Audrey Lord last night fantastic so good one of my favorites so good but I I've only been been looking at her for, like, less than 24 hours, so... Well, the good thing about Audrey is that the internet delivers on Audrey. The internet straight up delivers. So, (laughs) she was born Audrey, A-U-D-R-E-Y. You'll learn why that's important later. Geraldine Lord on February 18th, which is today. Happy birthday, Audrey! I think she would be, yeah, she would be like 94. She was born in 34, if my math serves me right, which it probably doesn't. She was a woman of many adjectives. Like, when she would describe herself, I know you're checking my math in your head. It's fine, continue. It's fine. (laughs) Um, She just uh, self-described herself as black lesbian mother warrior poet. 
but she's so much more, and that's something for her that she was constantly... I mean, something for me definitely that, that drew me to her and that I really connected with is that she was always kind of expanding what her identity was and always looking for more inside of her, which mm-hmm. is something that I really try to do as well, is to learn the most about myself as I can. Um, so she was born to Caribbean immigrants from Barbados and Car- 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 oh my god, I literally just looked up how to say this. I think it's Karaku? Karaku. Karaku. Let's just... I'm just going to keep going. I don't have my glasses Um, on, so I can't read. That's fine. So her mother was Linda, and she was mixed race, but she could pass as white, which was a source of pride in her family. Mm -hmm. Her her mom's parents were were a bit racist. There was a lot of colorism going on. And the only reason it was okay with her family to... um, for Linda to marry Byron... Um, Audrey's dad, who was much, much darker. Uh, the only reason it was okay was because he was very charming and had a lot of ambition. And um, she was still very prejudiced against her husband and against... Yeah. She very much looked down upon any darker colored people. Mm-hmm. And Which is so unfair. It's, it's, it's so unfair. Not only is it unfair to the people around you just in general, but whenever you... You've chosen to marry that person. Well, you've chosen to marry them, and then in addition to that, your children are going to be darker skinned than you. Like, that's... It's going to happen, Mm -hmm. you know? So, I mean, that... That just kind of starts the whole outcast thing before Audrey is even born. She was so nearsighted when she was young that she was legally blind, but she grew up uh, listening to her mother's stories a lot about, like, the West Indies. And, and a lot of it was, like, a lot of, like, pretty racist rhetoric. But she was very, very rebellious growing up and would challenge her parents. And her parents were very, very emotionally distant. Mm-hmm. They weren't. They worked a lot. And when they were home, they they weren't warm and fuzzy at all. Not hands-on. No. And, and they just weren't. They weren't warm and fuzzy. They weren't, like, loving people. And I think that from a very young age, Audrey and this was, probably... was very loving. Probably this was, like, like, around the, f- the Great Depression. Yeah. This was in the 30s. Well, the th- yeah, the, yeah, the 30s and then, like, uh, 40s. Early probably, 40s, she was yeah. born in what year? 34? 34. Okay. Yeah, so I think it's also just a characteristic of that um, time period and the way that people parented back then, too. Definitely. Like, they were just... But, yeah, you hear about, like, like when I was talking about Rosa Parks, like, she had... Very supportive figures. She had very supportive... Mm-hmm. And, and Audrey didn't. Like, her mm-hmm. family wasn't all very like nearby she also was the youngest of three girls and the older girls were very very close they kind of excluded her as i was about to say she was she's legally blind she had to wear like corrective shoes she had a lot of like disabilities Mm -hmm. and she was also the youngest so they felt that she got the most attention so she kind of wasn't really one of four girls three girls she's one of three there's two two older older sisters yeah and they were really really so much in common with who i'm gonna do later Excited. Well, yeah. what's funny is that they, like, the person who you're going to do later talks about her. Oh, no. Oh, my God. I changed people. I didn't what? tell you. What? <laughs> no way! No way. Sorry, go ahead. Okay. I love my life. Okay. <laughs> so, when she, she was four and she still couldn't speak. So, she, like, as she was kind of learning to speak, she was simultaneously teaching herself to read and write. Wow. And she had a lot of issues with communication. She really, um, well, because she had speech issues and she had a stutter and um, she also just didn't really always have the words to be able to describe how she felt. So, she started memorizing poetry. So, when people ask her how she was, she would recite poems back to her. This reminds me so much of Maya Angelou. 
Because, you know, Maya Angelou was, like, mute yeah. for, like, years and years and years and um, memorized books like, in her head, too. Yeah, and that's, yeah, and it gives, it gave her the words that she needed. And mm-hmm. I think, yeah, that's, there's definitely a lot of parallels where I think yeah. that probably gave them their eloquent speech, yeah. really, too. Like, yeah. They're not learning Elmo. They're learning, like, hardcore, Right, it made them poetry. better poets. Yeah. Totally. But she started writing her first poems when she was in, like, eighth grade. And the poetry she wrote connected herself to the other outcasts her age. Uh, She grew up going to... She started out going to a a public school, I believe, where she was the only black child. Mm -hmm. And then she went to a girls' school. And I have it written down somewhere. Oh, uh, Hunter College High School. Mm -hmm. And she was still the only black girl, but that was where she kind of, like, found her, like her, like, female group. So she, like, they they had, like, a poetry club where they would, like, read poems to mm-hmm. each other and stuff. And Word, so that's she, cool. Let's start a poetry club. She, oh, totally. <laughs> snap, snap. <laughs> um, but that's kind of, like, she wanted to connect with other people that were, that saw themselves as being outcasts as well. Oh, my God. I'm going to be burping through this entire episode. I'm Sorry, drinking. we're drinking champagne Ugh, <laughs> for the second so good. week in a row. True that. Okay, and for me, the second day in a row. <laughs> so, when she, around that same time, she started spelling her name A-U-D-R-E. When she was teaching herself to write, she, actually, it was probably before this time, because I, I heard on the, a lot of this stuff I got from Wikipedia, but even more of this stuff I got from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Mm-hmm. And they were saying that, like, when she was learning, like, her penmanship, when she was writing her name, she's like, that doesn't look right. I don't like that, because of the way her last name was spelled. So she liked the way that the two E's looked the ending of her names like so she just had this like artistic like eye yeah like to look at your name and be like that's not right that's crazy right yeah so it's she she turned her name into poetry she did she really did and uh she writes about it in her book um zami a new spelling of my name she explains that she chose to drop the y because of the way that it was looked and she wanted it to kind of be different than the way that her parents spelled it um, yeah, which again, I mean, I think we talked about this uh, when we talked about Sojourner Truth, mm-hmm. but there's something so like beautiful and empowering to me about choosing your name right? and like deciding who you are. Yeah. You know, I think that's really, really beautiful. So, kind of getting back to her parents, she really didn't have the greatest relationship with them. Like I said, they were they were very tough on her. They just like her mom had some like you know internalized racism going on and she and especially with her mother she had a lot of issues and she wrote about it a lot in her later poetry and there's a poem called storybooks on a kitchen table and the beginning of it i'm going to read real quick because it's beautiful it says out of her womb of pain my mother spat me into her ill-fitting harness of despair into her deceits where anger reconceived me piercing my eyes like arrows pointed by her nightmare of who i was not becoming Oh, she is such a phenomenal writer. I was telling you this whenever you told me um, who you were going to be doing today, but I remember when I was just like a little fledgling feminist, I read Sister Outsider, Mm -hmm. and it's been a really long time since I've, I've read that, but her poetry is so powerful and yes. beautiful and truthful. It, like, it's like everything you read by her, it's like it's just like taking a knife to the heart in a good way. It's so strong. Yeah. It's yeah. just, there's everything everything about it that you can, hits you in the yeah, gut. Yeah, you can like, feel mm. what she was writing when she wrote it. Like, when you read that, you can feel exactly how hurt yeah, she is. Yeah, exactly. And it's not so, like, 
out there that you're like, this is weird. You know, it's not so descriptive and like, I'm lost. It's just very to the point and beautiful. Yeah, it's just her truth. Yeah. Um, So when she was at the Hunter College High School... It was a school for the intellectually gifted students, which was another thing there. She felt kind of on the outside because she was very smart. She was very, very gifted. Um, she wrote a poem for, like, their school's, like, magazine. And she got, like, a letter back being like, this isn't appropriate, basically. So she was like, okay. So she sent it to Seventeen Magazine, and she was published in Seventeen <laughs> and got paid for it. Wow. Like, that's how, how old was she? She was in, like, eighth grade. This that's is amazing. still, like, her high school. Like, she's probably in, like, eighth or ninth grade. And then she started doing workshops at the Harlem Writers Guild. But again, she felt very outside of there. She was like, I was both crazy and queer, but they thought I would grow out of it. So, now. And I feel like that's such a parallel to what a lot of people feel like yeah. when they're in school. I mean, a lot of gay kids are just kids who are othered in general. Yes. Like, that's how people and that's look a, at you. And that's a word that they use a lot when discussing her that she yeah. uses to describe herself. Is that I'm sick of being other. So I'm going to start kind of getting into her homosexuality a little bit. Great. She's a proud black lesbian woman. And she really started at a very young age having very intense relationships with women. Like, even before it was, like, romantic, she would have very, like strong female, like, bonds and relationships. Mm -hmm. And when she was at Hunter College High School, she, I think, I think the first kind of, like, I guess, quote-unquote, girlfriend, I think her name was Genevieve, but I could be wrong, but it was a very intense thing. And I don't think, I mean, they were so young, I don't think it was sexual. I think it was just a very, like, Intense emotional bond. Yes. And she... This Genevieve, if I'm getting the name right, actually committed suicide when she was 16. Oh, wow. Which was just... Devastating, I'm sure. Devastating to her. And she she dealt with depression at a very, very young age before it was really recognized as being what it was. And she just kind of went into this downward spiral. But she would continue to have you know, beautiful relationships with, with women as she went on through her life. And it kind of went off and on as she was able to kind of like explore it more, but she, she had a lot of secret relationships. And yeah, she kind well, of, like, I mean, especially looking at the time, it would have to be secret, yeah. you know, because at that time, I mean, I'd have to look at the laws, but even some of the laws were yeah discriminatory I against. Think, yeah. She said, I read somewhere that, like, her... Well, the other thing is that she still dated men, Mm -hmm. but she would, like, still have female relationships. Mm -hmm. But she always dated white men. So, like, that was, like... Interesting. Yeah, she always dated... She married a white man eventually, Mm -hmm. which I'll get to. But she, you know, so there was always kind of that mixed relationship kind of, like, drama. Mm -hmm. And her parents knew that she was dating a white man, which which is weird because her mom was so racist against, like, dark skin, but she was also very, like, you're not dating a white guy, though. It was, like, a mixed bag. Like, it really was, like, a double-edged... she was between a rock and a hard place. Like, well, then who the fuck is he supposed to date? A light-skinned black man is probably what they wanted. You know what I mean? It's a double-edged sword. Yeah, you know exactly. Um, I might be getting the timeline a little bit wrong here, because I heard different things from Wikipedia and from the podcast, but um, at one point she attended uh, the University of Mexico, which she described as another time of affirmation and renewal. During this time, she continued to have relationships with women and white men. Um, Upon returning to New York, she graduated from Hunter College in 59, so it was the school that was, like, connected to her high school. And at this point, her parents, like, kind of disowned her. She had to kind of, like, make her way through. She worked as a librarian, and she continued writing, and she was an active participant in gay culture of Greenwich Village. So she would go to, like, these lesbian bars, but she was neither butch or femme. 
And at that point, and she was black. Like, so she didn't fit into any of those boxes and felt very, like, she was just going to this place to try to find a place to belong. I mean, this was at a time when, I mean, obviously, which, I mean, we'll talk about later, obviously the term intersectionality wasn't coined until, like, the 1980s. Mm -hmm. But even the idea, I mean, because during second wave feminism, they discussed it a teensy bit. You know, black feminists in general discussed it a little bit. But usually whenever those discussions were happening in the second wave, it was you thought of it as being either like white women who were feminists, or if you were intersectional, it was like a person of color and a and a and a woman. But oftentimes, we they didn't talk about those. There was like, no homosexual like. Yeah, I mean, there was a homosexual presence during the second wave of of, of feminism, but you didn't look at it in, in terms but of it, it wasn't being like connected, right? As much. Yeah, and if you looked at it like that, then you, it was just like we our brains couldn't handle more than two things. Oh, she was a million you know? things. Yeah, and that's the thing, and, and it gets she gets even more like out there as she gets older. Like, she's just like, I am who I am. Um, she earned a master's degree in library science from Columbia in 61. And during this time, she worked as a public librarian, again, in Mount Vernon. She was the only black employee. Lord also spent time at, I think it's Tugaloo College, Tugaloo College. And like her time at the University of Mexico, very formative again. But this was for more so for her as an artist. Uh, she led a lot of workshops for young black undergraduate students. And this was like in the Deep South, I heard too. So it was very like controversial. But she talked a lot with these black undergraduate students about civil rights issues. And she really re- reaffirmed her desire not only to live her crazy and queer identity, but also to devote attention to formal aspects of her craft as a poet. Um, so she started really expressing more of her truth in her mm-hmm. writing. She continued to become a professor of English. I mean, she did. She would speak all over the place and talk to different groups of people. At one point, she went to Germany in 84, and she did a lecture when they were kind of coining the term Afro-German, because we had African-American. They mm-hmm. were coining this Afro-German. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, she really kind of, like, gave a new light to to the people of Germany for uh, people like her. And it also really made her dig more into her own um, African culture. She started kind of dressing more in the African, um, traditional African styles and just kind of felt like her, there would be ancestry there. She, you know, tried to find like proof of her father's like birth there or grandfather. And Mm -hmm. so she, she deep connection to her heritage. She just wanted to know everything about herself that she Uh could, which I think is amazing and something that I definitely can uh, like feel along with her her poetry was so deeply rooted in the differences in oneself she said i am defined as other in every group i'm part of she would say mm-hmm. she described herself both as part of a continuum continuum of women and a concert of voices within herself mm-hmm. so she very much connected with women but she was just this concert of voices in her head there was so much going on at once and she couldn't have it all fit together yet Her poetry was published a lot in the 60s, and during that time, she also focused on civil rights, anti-war feminism in her writing. Mm -hmm. She was there for the March on Washington when Martin Luther King gave his speech, but she actually wasn't there for his speech. She heard it in the car with her husband at the time. (laughs) And, um... But she, you gosh, know, what a still, bummer, right? But she still states it as being. I mean, it was still incredibly moving, you mm-hmm. know. And she still states it as being like one of those really like big turning points for her. Her writing is based on the theory of difference, the idea that the binary opposition between men and women is overly simplistic, while most feminists of the time found it necessary to present the illusion of a solid, unified whole. Uh, her writing was always strongly based in race and sexuality. In her essay, "The Erotic 
as power. Lord emphasizes the importance of exploring one's sexuality fully to grow a closer connection to themselves, which was fucking radical. At I'm the time. sure. Yeah. This is before even like the hippie movement. This yeah. This is, is before like, like the feminine mystique or any of yeah, that stuff was going on. And she's like, yeah, like. Ex- women explore your sexuality don't deny yourself any experience well and like, especially at a time like that whenever you weren't encouraged to kind of like figure yourself out how could you possibly yeah. and you were just told exactly what you were supposed to be mm-hmm. how how are you supposed to know anything else if you, I didn't, mean, if you didn't explore that the thing with her it started with her name change mm-hmm. she took control completely of her mm-hmm. life and she was like I don't have to do anything that these people are telling me this is the way I'm going to live my truth and she was a bit of a trailblazer in the intersectional feminist movement, as we said. She felt a connection to the poet Alice Walker's term womanist uh-huh. um, in an attempt to distinguish black female and minority female experience from feminism. Yeah, I actually, um, because I'm in, uh, I, I was in several groups um, that were like black feminism groups. Uh-huh. And a lot of black women, I'd never heard that before. Like, I'd, even though I'd, you know, read some Audre Lorde and things like that, I'd never really heard black women not wanting to label themselves as feminists and instead actively labeling themselves as womanists. I mean, I think it's great. And I think that if you feel like you have to separate it in order for it to feel more... Um, well, they were separating themselves from a movement that they felt didn't serve them. Exactly. You know what and I mean? if that's what you have to do in order to feel like you're living true to who you are, that's mm-hmm. what you have to do, you know? Um, Alice Walker's comments on womanism is that a womanist is to feminist as purple is to lavender. Right. Um, it's just... it's. Just a, a bit of a shift from what we know as feminism. And Lord actively strived to change the culture within the feminist community by implementing the womanist ideology. Lord states that womanism allows black women to affirm and celebrate their color and culture in a way that feminism does not. Right. Um, every time I'm saying Lord now, I'm thinking of the singer Lord. <laughs> it just popped into my head. And I was like, that's not No, right. she doesn't get to have that. She doesn't get to have that at all. Um at one point, Lord attacked underlying racism with feminism, describing it as unrecognized dependence on the patriarchy. She argued that by denying difference in the category of women, white feminists merely furthered old systems of the operation, and that in so in doing so, they were preventing any real lasting change. Mm-hmm. Her argument aligned white feminists who did not recognize race as a feminist issue with male slave masters describing both as agents of oppression, mm-hmm. which is crazy because like that's something that you and I have a lot of conversations about the difference between white feminism and regular feminism that is still or I shouldn't say regular feminism intersectional feminism right to us that regular a lot of feminism pe- right that a lot of people don't understand like I when we first started this podcast I was on the phone with my mom telling her because originally we were going to be doing an intersectional episode a while ago mm-hmm. and so I was she was like what is that what is white feminism what and I explained it to her and I was like you know it's, it's an acknowledgement of your privilege and like knowing that feminism is more than just about being a right. woman it's about all of these other things that right and, it, and it. it's called white feminism because the movement aligned so closely with white middle class women yeah. and really kind of didn't speak to the experiences or the individual or very unique struggles of people of color or people of a, even a different social class. Yeah. You know, it really didn't... Or disability serve, yeah. or religion yeah. or it was it was very much one type of woman, I feel like, at right. first that was very And next week on. you'll hear more about that when we talk about the first suffragettes. <laughs> um, she says, as white women ignore their built-in privilege of whiteness and define women in terms of their own experience alone, that women of color become other. Which, like, just the language she's using is, like, language that we are using mm-hmm. right now. 
blows yeah. me. Like this could she could have this could be someone who made a speech yesterday. She had a very modern way of looking oh at, at life and at feminism. Yes. At a time when Just other people weren't thinking the that way. Phrasing. And she don't had, ignore your built in privilege. Yeah. Come on, that's amazing. And she had the ability to state it in a very transparent way. Well, and in a way that a lot of people, even white feminists, wouldn't, like, you know, she did have a lot of criticism, but I think a lot of people also would probably listen to her and be like, oh... Because if you're really listening, you cannot argue with that. No, you can't. And and it's, you know, people, whenever you say privilege to somebody who really doesn't understand, they're going to get Their offended. guard goes straight up. It's the same like, thing. No, no, I'm not privileged. What, what do you mean? I've seen hardships. And Buzz's like, no, we're not saying that's not, that. That's not what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, even the term white feminism gets people's, you know, hackles raised. And yeah. they get really defensive. Oh, I mean, the first time I heard it, I felt like, oh, does that mean that I'm less of a feminist. You know what I mean? You start to kind of question what that means, but then as soon as you learn more about it, you realize that it's not a bad thing. I always say, use your powers of privilege for good and not evil, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, Lord defines racism, sexism, ageism, heterosexism, elitism, and classism together and explains that an ism is an idea what is being privileged is superior and has the right to govern anything else. Oh, that's so... just all the isms. That's such an amazing way to put it. Mm -hmm. She had such a way with words that can make anyone understand anything, yeah. I feel like. Yeah. Lord explains that a mythical norm is what all bodies should be. The mythical norm of U.S. culture is white, thin, male, young, heterosexual, Christian, financially secure. So it's like, that's that's this myth that that's what the norm is, but the norm like really doesn't exist. And when you take... I, and I think it's so... Especially coming out of the time that she came out of, I think it's... That's what... Even white men were trying to portray that. Yeah. Even if you just took the segment of, like, white men in America at that time and just looked under a microscope at it for, like, any amount of time, you would start to see all different kinds of variations of people that they were just trying to bury and hide, you know? Exactly. And that's the thing that that she was so accepting of is, like... She wasn't just for one type of people. She was one for the outcasts, whatever Mm -hmm. that meant. In the late 80s, she also helped establish the Sisterhood and Support of Sisters in South Africa to benefit black women who were affected by apartheid and other forms of injustice. And, like, that, I was just like, what? Because I'm, like, I'm trying to get this hashtag sister solidarity thing going. And I want to hear people's sister solidarity stories. And, like... Oh my god, like she's <laughs> she and a couple other women, I can't remember their names off the top of my head, started it all. Mm-hmm. They were like they they did that women in order helping to, women. You know, I think they wanted to they wanted to help stop the innate competition that we are told is just ingrained into us. Oh, don't get a bunch of girls together. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, that's that's just a recipe for disaster. Yeah, because women can't help but fight with each other. Right. Well, when, when really, we, I mean, we are absolutely conditioned to do that. Yeah. But also, I think part of the power in getting older and, and really discovering female friendships is that you realize this is the best support system mm-hmm. that I could possibly have. And yep. I'm not undermining my male friendships. Like, I have all. incredible male friendships, like yeah. f- ones that I value so much. Yeah. But that whole like women helping women, we have like unique issues that we can help each other with. Exactly. And, you know, women of all variations really like you bring know, something say, to the table you know, yeah. support your sisters not your sisters and yeah like you know it's like you, we, it's good to just support everybody um so now i'm going to touch a little bit more on kind of her uh relationships because it's very fascinating she's very very like 
again, ahead of her time when it comes <laughs> to her relationships. Audrey had relationships with both men and women, but she married Ed, uh, Edwin Rollins, or Rollins, when she, and she had two children. And it was pretty much just kind of agreed with them that, like, they wouldn't be faithful, but they would be open to... It was an open relationship, basically. Mm-hmm, an open marriage. And, yeah, and Edwin, though he never came out as gay he had a lot of gay affairs like he was pretty gay <laughs> like for someone who's not gay he was I pretty wonder gay. what I mean I wonder if now with all of our accepted um identities and understanding that sectionary is uh, sectionary understanding that sexuality is a spectrum yeah. I wonder what he would identify as now like pansexual I bisexual? wonder what she would yeah identify I, I do, because I she you know, she loved him, but she wasn't in love with him. Well, maybe you know it's I mean? a maybe it really is like a, a pansexuality where it's yeah. just like you love who you love, and it yeah. makes no it, it makes yeah. no difference. I mean, actually, I think with Audrey, she probably was more of a lesbian because she does describe. I her thought love she identified that way. She does identify. She did identify as a lesbian, but she did. She had love for him, but not like a, the love that you should have when love. you get married to somebody. Right. Yeah, but you know what? I think also. It's not exactly what I want for myself, but I think it's also kind of an interesting thing to think about the idea of marrying somebody who you know loves you and is going to be committed to you and is going to be... We have this idea of like romantic love and romantic marriages, yeah. but maybe there's something to be said about committing your life to, to someone and spending your life with someone who maybe you, you're not sexually attracted to or romantically attached to, but you know that that love that you have for that person is going to last forever. Well, you I mean, can I have, think that's kind of where, like, asexuality is going, with, like, asexual relationships. Yeah, and you can have, like, a meaningful, it's, lasting yeah. relationship yeah, with someone. Yeah, and it totally depends on the person. For a lot of people, that, that might not work. But for a lot of people, that's probably something they feel needs to be more of in the world and represented more because that's not a normal thing. Um, I, I say normal in quotations, but, uh, while she was married to Edwin, she was having a relationship with a woman named Frances and they, it, it was a very, again, very intense love affair and they were together for a really long time. Ed and Audrey were really ahead of their time with their parenting style. Uh, they were a mixed-race homosexual couple, spoke openly with their children about social issues. I wrote Audrey was a total 2018 mom and made homemade whole grain bread and limited their kids' sugar intake. Like, what? <laughs> Crazy. She would have shopped at Whole Foods, probably. For and... sure. And she was very... She really wanted her son, Jonathan, to kind of follow in her footsteps of being this, like, activist. And he, you know, as kids do, don't always follow in their par- parents' footsteps. So that was a, a bit of a frustrating thing And for as her. they as they shouldn't, you know what yeah, I mean? Like, yeah. you're your own individual. Exactly, exactly. Uh, well, things started getting a little shaky in her marriage with Ed because as she was very, very open with having relationships with women, especially mm-hmm. with Francis, he snuck around a little bit more. That did not make her very happy. She's like, if we're going to do this, you got to be, like, open with me about well, it. Well, why wouldn't you? Yeah. Like, that's the thing I don't quite because understand. I think he was... I think he was closeted gay, and he okay. just—I don't—I just don't think he was uh, comfortable with like expressing if, that. If that's the case, how sad is that? Like, I, I, how I, sad that's is probably it? what it was. How because sad is it that you're in a relationship with somebody who fully supports and understands what you're going through, and but you that's still it, can't internalize homophobia? No, though, I know. You know, like you just can't get past it. Um, from seventy-seven to seventy-eight, Lord had a brief affair with a sculptor and painter, Mildred Thompson. This is when her life starts, her health starts to kind of go downhill. And while her health is going downhill, she is still traveling up a storm. She's going to New Zealand. Mm-hmm. She's going back to Germany. And, and still writing. Going, and writing. I mean, she never stops. Mm-hmm. She never stopped. 
Um, she was diagnosed with breast cancer in 78, and, um, she first found a lump, and it was benign, and then she, like, basically learned as much as she could about it and started writing about cancer, and then in 78, when she was actually diagnosed, she already was, like, fully versed in it and, like, was prepared. When she was a little bit younger, she fell in love with a woman who was 27 years older than her and had Mm -hmm. breast cancer and had a mastectomy, Mm -hmm. and so... Although she never stated this as being the reason why, she got a mastectomy. I'm sure there was something to do with that influence that she had when she was young. Seeing someone... So she didn't need one medically? She did need one. Oh, okay. She had breast cancer. She had one of her breasts removed. Okay. So she did need it, but but she writes a lot in the cancer journals about how when she got her mastectomy, the sexism that went along with it where like doctors and nurses and everybody would be like, okay, when are we getting the prosthetic in? When are we? And she's like, we're not. And like, they just couldn't fathom why she would only want one breast. Um, and she started dressing really, um, asymmetrical <laughs> on purpose. Like she was like, this is the way my body is now. So I'm going to celebrate it and I'm going to do things this Gosh, way. Gosh, there's something so phenomenal and brave about just her inherent, desire to accept yeah. herself. Well, like, and it's she incredible. was just this hippie chick. She's like, she didn't even, she didn't want radiation. She was like, I'm going to eat only fruits and vegetables and I'm going to prey on it. And okay, I'm gonna, well, she did all of, I know, I know. If you're but listening she, to this, please don't take that route. <laughs> but she was, she was just like super holistic and like, you know, but this is also like in the seventies, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, no, but I know people now who, who do that. I think I saw oh, something no, yeah. recently and I was just like, look, man, don't do that. Like, don't do it. We have like, science is, is pretty good nowadays. Right. Like, please get. But but what's crazy is like she like a few years after they like diagnosed her with cancer, she had another cast scan, and they were like, "Well, it hasn't gotten any bigger." She's like, "Cool, it's working." <laughs> so she just kept doing it for a while, and then it you know obviously didn't. And eventually, because of her breast cancer, she got liver cancer. And the book that she wrote, the cancer journals, won the American Library Association. Association. I can't say that word either. God, I can usually say it. What happened? Maybe because I'm like around you, it just like transferred to me. The gay, I can never say this word, caucus book. Oh, yeah. Kind of makes me laugh. Caucus. Well, get ready because there's a lot of that in mine. Caucus. Uh, In 1981. Oh, I also, God, I, I need better endings to my stories because I fucking. When did she die? She, fuck. It's okay. She died. She died. She died. (laughs) She did die. She did die. She died on November 17th, 1992, the year I was born, in uh, St. Croix, U.S. Virgin Islands. She really saw the Caribbean as her home. She found that as her home, and she lived with Mildred until she passed away. At the time she passed away? Yeah, they were really... And I believe believe it was Mildred or somebody else. One of her... I think it was Mildred. I believe she wrote a book talking about her time with her. I just did some light YouTube searching and stuff like that, and I saw a few things with her, so I definitely want to look into that more. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, she was just this, like, the definition of a free spirit. And her, her writings are just so... I really, like... You will so enjoy reading Sister Outsider. Oh, I'm for you sure going to definitely read it. do it. I'm going to buy it because I don't own it, but it w- it was something that really shaped me. And I remember um, I'm going to a rally tomorrow for um, people against gun violence in the wake of uh, the Parkland shooting. And I thought about writing it on my poster as I think about writing it on my poster every single time whenever I go to a rally, uh-huh. any rally. What were you going to write? I, I always want to write because it resounded so much in me and it's something that made me kind of like come out of my shell. Um, 
your silence will not protect you. Oh, yes. Because that that was something that I, when I was reading Sister Outsider, I was just like, oh my God, like it hit me like, like a cannonball to the chest, you know what I mean? Yeah. It was just like, your silence will not protect you. Like no. you can sit there and be quiet and be in your bubble and pretend like nothing, nothing's going on. But then nothing is going to change. And, and there's no guarantee that that makes you safe. Yeah. You know, like you're not, just because you can close your eyes to it and it can make you feel it's safe. It's like a little kid who puts their, their bed covers over their heads and the monsters right. don't get them. You yeah. Know? But if the monster's coming, it's coming. And, it's coming and it's you know, going to... I am going to be talking about Polly Murray, who I am shocked that I didn't know about. Like, I'm actually very, very surprised. Polly? Polly, like P-A-U-L-I, not Polly, like P-O-L-L-Y. Right. Polly Murray. Murray, yes. I don't know this person at all. So she was born Anna Pauline Murray on November 20th, 1910 in Baltimore, Maryland, and her mother was Agnes Murray, and she died of a cerebral hemorrhage when Polly was only four years old. Oh, no. So... Yeah, like already, I mean, she was essentially orphaned because right after that, her father, William, who was a popular English teacher at a local high school, um, he came down with typhoid, typhoid fever, and it it was only, I think, maybe a year or so, like, (gasps) after her mother's death did he get sick, and then as a result of the typhoid, he ended up having, like, long-term consequences from it because he'd had typhoid fever for a couple of years. When he first came down with it, they went ahead and sent... Polly and her siblings to various relatives throughout the country. So That's so sad. It's very what, sad. Remind me what year this is again. So she was born in 1910. So I think around like 1915. Yeah. Um, they sent her to go live with her aunt Pauline. Okay. And her grandparents in in North Carolina. So after the kids were sent away, her father continued to get like sicker and sicker, <sighs> and even though he mostly recovered from typhoid fever, it ended up doing damage. I don't know how it works, but it did damage to him um, well, I mentally. Think, I think it's also just like, if you have a fever in general for a certain amount of time, that can affect you. But then, yeah, I think that there are certain illnesses where it'll have lingering effects because it's it's something attacking your body. And if it's that way for so long, I can see where there would be yeah, it, it had psychological effects on him. So he oh. ended up having mental and emotional problems. Oh, dear. And he was sent to the psychiatric wing of Crownsville State Hospital, which was also called the Hospital for the Negro Insane of Maryland. Mm. So um, both of her parents identified as black. And so her father was confined to this basically mental institution for black people. I have a feeling he wasn't treated very well. He was not treated very well. In fact, he was murdered by a white guard <gasps> in 1923 Stop. when he was beat to death. Oh um, my god. Pauline was 13 at the time, and she had hoped uh, whenever she grew up that she could take custody of her dad and yeah, take care of him. and like have a relationship with him in some mm-hmm. way. But unfortunately, she never got the chance because he passed away when that she was 13. That is something we should talk about during Mental Health Awareness mm-hmm. Month is the history of like psych wards, mental hospitals, the treatment of patients. My friend was in a hospital a few years ago and she, you know, brought herself in. But then as soon as she was in, she was like, oh my God, get me the fuck out. Like these people, Mm -hmm. it was crazy. And and it can be difficult to get yourself out too. Like once you're in, it can be hard to get yourself out. It 
Yeah, is. and it would be especially interesting. I was doing I I wasn't trying to focus on this and I already have like six pages of notes, so I I didn't want to spend too long looking at it, but right. there is a Wikipedia page for Crownsville State Hospital and the history of it is interesting because I think it was erected, I mean, this is the early 1900s, and I think it was erected in, like, the late 1800s, whenever right. they decided, like, hey, you know, black people can be mentally into, like Ill, Ill as well, and, like, what do we do with these people? Because <laughs> you, you know can't what I mean? put them with white people. That no, would just they be, have to have their own... Can't do that. You know, psychiatric hospital. So that's whenever they created this hospital. So I, I bet you the history is really fascinating and probably I bet it's haunted, really sad. Haunted yeah. as fuck, too. That, yeah, we're totally... Gonna, that is so fascinating to me. I was never in a hospital, but I know a lot of people who were. Mm-hmm. I was lucky, lucky enough that I was in kind of like homes yeah. that had medical care and things like that, so it's a little bit different, but... But it's really sad because, you know, this man was a very popular, well-liked English teacher. Yeah. He was kind of like, he went to Howard University. And he got sick. Mm-hmm, and it made him ill. It's not like, you know... So and then he got killed. Yeah, and then he got killed. So poor Polly at this point. Polly. She is 13 and now officially orphaned. Oh um, my gosh. But she's been living with her Aunt Pauline and her grandparents. Right. Basically from the time she was like five or so. So at least she has, hopefully, positive support from her She family. She does. Okay, so good. her Aunt Pauline was a school teacher, and she often took young Polly with her to work. Mm-hmm. And so Polly began reading books and studying subjects that were far advanced for her grade level wise. Mm-hmm. So she was like really um, smart and really studious and wanted to learn. Yeah. And so not only was her father a teacher, but her aunt Pauline, and then she had another aunt who also lived in that area in North Carolina, and they were both teachers as well. So Polly lived in Durham, North Carolina until 1926 when at the age of 16 she graduated from Hillside High School in North Carolina and then decided to move to New York where she would attend a second high school in order to meet the entrance requirements for college. Interesting. So So in North Carolina, you could graduate at 16, but then if you wanted to live elsewhere or go to college, you had to go elsewhere? I'm guessing it was the level of education that she got at the high school in North Carolina. Like, maybe it didn't meet the credit requirements for college. So she went to um, New York. By herself at 16? By herself. Damn, girl. But she went to uh, live with a cousin named Maude. So. I love that name. Maud. I know. I love old names. I think they're they're really fun. So even though Polly's parents identified as black, she had kind of a complicated mixed race background, like more distantly. So her, her, I mean, her parents looked black. She looks obviously mixed race. You can tell that she's, she's black. Um, But her cousin Maud and her entire family were white passing. So they were mixed race, but they were white passing and they were living in a white neighborhood, which made it difficult for for, um, Polly to be there. Yeah, I mean, it is New York, which I think has always been, you know, it was in the North. It's not like living in the South where it's probably different, but still, if you're living in a white neighborhood in New York, that kind of goes with the implications of like... It's a different kind of... It's a different kind of racism. Like it's like a superiority um, kind of thing. I, um, it's a more subtle form of racism, but it still like very much exists. In, oh, it totally, in it the totally North. does. Yeah. I can see. You know, I think of like the Hamptons, like white people, mm-hmm. and just the the 
strong divide between the races at the time. Right. And and, and we're talking 1927. Exactly. So it's definitely well, very divided. civil rights. Yeah, everything. absolutely. Yeah. It's completely before any of that was going on. And so more than anything, I think that she just made their neighbors uncomfortable. Probably. Like, yeah, yeah, Like yeah. very uncomfortable. They had an eye on her, probably. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So in 1927, Polly finished her second high school degree and she was inspired to attend Columbia University, but she was rejected because of her gender. So what you're going to see a lot with Polly Murray is there's a lot of intersections at play. She was kind of one of the first people to really point out um, what it's like to exist within these different margins and how they intersect together and how they make your life more difficult. Yeah. Um, Later on, we'll detail it, but, like, she actually even called out, like, the civil rights movement and stuff in, like, the 50s and 60s for not being inclusive to women. Yeah. You know, so... So, yeah. So, um, she couldn't attend their sister college, Bernard, because she couldn't afford it. So, she attended Hunter College, a free city college where she was one of the only people of color in attendance. Wow. She graduated in 1933 with a bachelor's in English, and she graduated right in the middle of the Great Depression. So, she wasn't really able to find work after this, Mm -hmm. and so she had to abandon her studies for a little while and go work. Polly had gotten married in secret in 1930 to a man named Roy Wynn. However, this marriage quickly fell apart. Uh, Historian Rosalind Rosenberg said, Their honeymoon weekend spent in a cheap West Side hotel was a disaster, an experience that she later attributed to their youth and poverty. The truth was more complicated. As Polly explained in notes to herself a few years later, she felt repelled by the act of sexual intercourse. Mm. Part of her wanted to be a normal woman, but another part resisted. Why is it when men try to make love to me, something in me fights? Mm -hmm. So she had the marriage annulled. A few years later, like... Was there any history of, like, sexual assault that we know of with her? Not that we know of, but I think it'll become a little bit more clear here in a a couple paragraphs. All right, let's do it. So she took several jobs during the Depression, and one was as a remedial teacher, and she began, like, writing. She had several of her works published in the paper. But then she took a position at Camp Terra, which was a camp created by Eleanor Roosevelt to provide employment for young women. And there, she met Eleanor Roosevelt, and they actually developed, like, a lifelong friendship. Uh, They remained friends until Eleanor died a few decades later. Here, she also had her first reported relationship with a woman who was a white camp counselor named uh, Peg Holmes. That was my second guess. (laughs) Yes, yeah, so... I was wondering, there are, like, uh, theories that Eleanor Roosevelt was gay, I've heard so that I as thought well. you were gonna say that there. I thought you were gonna bring that up. Like maybe that was her. Well, like, I didn't read anything about that, but they did have a very close friendship. Um, and they could have just been a friendship. Yeah, it could have no, just been a friendship. We could, don't know. Just because they're gay doesn't mean they were together. We don't but know. <laughs> uh, so the camp's director, the uh, camp director at Camp Terra, disapproved of Polly partially because while Polly was there, she had some of her school textbooks, and some of them were communist literature, and so the camp director found that and yeah. was already like not about it. Uh, but then also when the camp director found out about Peg. And Polly, it was a problem not only because it was a homosexual relationship, but it was also an interracial relationship. Peg and Polly? Peg and Polly. (laughs) So the two of them actually left the camp together, and they they traveled the country 
walking, hitchhiking, and hopping freight trains. Yeah, girls, <laughs> do it. It's very unsafe, but like very live unsafe, your lives. but also <laughs> but love. But it's very romantic to it look is. back on now, knowing that they came out of it Alive. okay. I yeah, assume. exactly. Um, Murray applied to the University of North Carolina in 1938 to attend their graduate program, but was rejected because of her race. So she was rejected from Columbia because of her, her gender. gender, and then she was rejected from the University of North Carolina because of her race. So. All schools and other public facilities in the state at the time were segregated by law. So this is kind of the first time when she starts becoming interested in civil rights. She's like, "Uh, this segregation shit, I'm not about it. No, it's got to end, man. So she began a national campaign to overturn their decision, and it was widely reported on in both black and white newspapers. She wrote to officials... um, talking about the university. She wrote to the university president, President Roosevelt, and she would release their responses, whatever they said back to her, she would release it in the newspaper. She would wow. publish it in That's the media. It went in an attempt to embarrass them. It was like she was trying to shame them into doing the right thing, basically. Yeah. The NAACP initially was interested in taking her case, but later declined to represent her in court. NAACP leader Roy Wilkins opposed representing her because Murray had already released her correspondence, uh, which he considered to be not a diplomatic move. So he wrote to her. She had written to him asking for something. Yeah. He wrote back, and, it, and I'm guessing it was not so nice, and she published it. I was just going to say, I bet that girl published mm-hmm. it. Yep. And so it it upset him. It yeah. He just, he phrased it in saying that it wasn't a diplomatic move. It wasn't mm-hmm. like a smart move. So um, there was part of, partly that, like he didn't want to represent her because of that. They also said that it had something to do with being like a New York case, but a lot of people speculate that there were concerns about her sexuality. She, um, wore pants instead of skirts and she was she she was very open about her relationships with women she didn't really try and hide it right well and as we know you know the NAACP did so much good but it was also very flawed system it was very flawed I mean the when we look at the history of intersectionality which we will do very soon Mm -hmm. you know the feminist movement wasn't inclusive to the black population mm-hmm. and the NAACP was not open to um, women in general, and definitely when it came to different sexualities. Yeah, absolutely. That was like too much. You know, th- these different groups were very much like, let's focus at the task at hand. They weren't inclusive. Right. To yes, all. yes. Yeah. And, you know, you can understand that and sympathize with that to a certain degree. They're like, we, one thing at a time, we yeah. want to get these things done uh, one thing at a time. But it makes it very difficult for people living in those intersections because. You know, you're. Your they don't needs, have a way to turn. Right, your needs aren't being met. Really, yeah. like not fully either where, way you go. And where is she supposed to go if the NAACP doesn't help her? Right, exactly, you know? exactly. So in early 1940, uh, Murray was walking the streets of Rhode Island. She was distraught after the disappearance of a woman friend. So people now speculate that um, this was like a romantic kind of yeah. relationship that had gone wrong, and she was upset. So she was just walking around the street upset, yeah. as you do. I've I've definitely been in public Same. being overly emotional. And she was taken into custody by police, just picked up off the street, and transferred to Bellevue Hospital in New York City for psychiatric treatment. What so the fuck? They basically picked her up. They were like, she's hysterical. And then they like threw her into psychiatric treatment at Bellevue. She's crying. Yeah. So in March, uh, Murray left the hospital. And After probably experiencing horrible abuse. Probably. And she'd been there for a couple months, yeah. I think, at horrible. this point. So, yeah, anytime you're being held without your consent, you know, you can only imagine it's not 
great. Well, and especially the fact that she is a gay black woman. Right. Right. And Doesn't so look good. she left the hospital with um, her roommate and girlfriend, Adeline McBean. They oh. left together. Did so, they meet in the hospital? I don't think so. I'm not sure. That I'm unclear about. I don't know if they were roommates in the hospital or roommates outside. I'm not I'm not sure. So Peg um, is gone. Peg is gone. Yeah, okay. at this point. Uh, so they took a bus to Durham to visit Pauline. And when they were in Virginia on their way to Durham, the two women... So Adeline McBean is also a black woman. So the two women moved out of the broken seats in the back of the bus and moved into the front section of the bus. Oh, God. I'm so, seeing so many parallels of other... I was thinking Ruby Bridges earlier mm-hmm, with the education, and mm-hmm. now I'm thinking Rosa Parks. Oh, and it all ties together, it too. Does. And that's what's amazing, is like, this is, in, this is in 1940. Yeah. So this is years before. and years before Rosa Parks did what she did. Okay. So they moved into the white section. They had just had kind of an academic conversation about um, Gandhian civil disobedience. Yeah. So they basically were like, we're going to try this, like, civil disobedience thing. So whenever people told them to move, they didn't move. They called the police, and they still didn't move. So they were arrested and thrown in jail. Murray and McBean initially were defended by the NAACP, but when the pair were convicted only of disorderly conduct rather than violating segregation laws, the organization decided to stop representing them. So basically the NAACP only wanted to represent them if it was like a segregation issue, which it was, but they They weren't weren't charged with segregation laws. They were charged with disorderly conduct. So um, they withdrew their defense. It's a sneaky move by the Mm -hmm. court. Yeah, it is. Because... Again, while I think it's the wrong move, I also understand that the NAACP needs to be very careful about, like, how they move where, forward. And where they put their support. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because... It's definitely a complicated Right, because this situation. can look like you're defending disorderly, you know, conduct. Yeah. And they're like, well, they're not being charged with any race-related law, so why are you here? Right, you know? we, have to, we have to defend those who are um, being charged with segregation laws. Right, I get that. right. Um, So the Workers' Defense League, the WDL, which is a socialist labor rights organization, um, and they were beginning to take on civil rights cases, they decided to um, pay her fine and get her out of jail. So a few months later, the WDL hired Murray for its administrative committee. And so while she was working with the WDL, Murray became active in a case of Odell Waller. Now, Odell Waller was a Virginia, Virginia sharecropper who was charged with murdering the landowner that he was working for. And he said that it was self-defense, that they had gotten into a dispute because the landowner refused to pay him uh, his portion of the shares or, like, give him his crop. Yeah. Uh, And so they got into a dispute and he killed him in self-defense. So... The WDL took interest in this, and they went down to help defend him, and they were, like, fighting to defend him. Polly Murray was very uh, instrumental in getting a lot of, like, national coverage for him and things like that. And she actually even wrote to Lady Eleanor Roosevelt on Waller's behalf, and Roosevelt, in turn, wrote to the Virginia governor asking him to guarantee that the trial would be fair. Uh And she later persuaded the president to privately request to the governor to commute the death sentence of Waller when he was convicted. So he was convicted by a jury of all white guys. Of course. (laughs) So um, he ended up being convicted of first-degree murder, and unfortunately, despite all of that, and despite, like, their friendship 
uh, Polly and Eleanor's and all the work that they both did to try and save his life. It didn't work. He was put to death. Oh, no. Because of all this... Polly became very, very interested in civil rights law. Mm -hmm. And so in 1941, she began attending Howard University Law School. Wow. And she was... Where's she getting the money for all this? Dude, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. Scholarships, maybe? I hope so. My God. And also, I mean, school was cheaper back then. Yeah, that's true. It's uh, amazing. She was the only woman in her law school class, and she was she became very, very aware of sexism within black communities. Oh, like, my gosh. You know, sexism within racism, and she called it Jane Crow, basically <gasps> saying that it's like Jim Crow, but it's it affects black women differently, differently in a different way. So she called it Jane Crow, and actually a lot of, like, the work that has been written about her that is one of her, like, big, big overarching... Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. that's really cool. On Murray's first day of class, one professor, William Robert Ming, remarked that he did not know why women went to law school. <laughs> but he was like, he said, I think in one of the things that I watched on YouTube, he said, I don't know why women come to law school, but they're here, boys, so you just have to deal with it. Like, basically. I mean, that, he could say worse things. He could say worse things, he could say better things. Uh, yeah. You know... <laughs> In 1942, while still in law school, Murray joined the Congress of Racial Equality, and later that year she published Negro's Youth's Dilemma, which challenged segregation in the U.S. military, which had continued up until the Second World War, which is insane, okay? Like, if you're out fighting and dying for your fucking country, like, that's ridiculous. Yeah. She also participated in sit-ins, and this was, again, in the 1940s. So she's participating in civil disobedience. We credit all these other people with, like, starting this kind of, like, civil disobedience movement. Yeah. And not to diminish, you know, Martin Luther King or anybody, like, not to diminish what they've done. Of course but not. I didn't know about... <laughs> yeah, we about, didn't grow up learning about these people. Yeah. But, I mean, I, what I think is interesting is that she was inspired by Gandhi. Yes. You know, that was something that, you know... People's inspirations and ideas come from other things. Like, if we were to really peel back the la- the layers of time mm-hmm. to see who, what inspired Gandhi, what inspired... Like, it's interesting how, you know, those people are all the backbones to what created the movements that we were taught in school. Right, you know? right, yeah. I mean, and then the idea of, like, sit-in, so, like, actively, like, going and peacefully protesting, yes. essentially, which is, of course, something that was later taken on by the civil rights movement of the 1960s. Yeah. So she um, she was participating in these things, and then she was elected Chief Justice uh, of Howard Court of Peers, which is the highest student position in Howard. Wow. And she is the only woman in the law department there yeah. at this time. And she got it. Yes, she got it. And yes, in 1944, girl. she graduated first in her class. Of course she did. So traditionally, men who graduated first in their class were awarded Julius Rosenwald fellowships for graduate work at Harvard University, but Harvard did not accept women, so she couldn't go to Harvard. And you know um, <laughs> yeah, she was rejected despite having a letter of support from President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. What the fuck? So she wrote to them and she said, I would gladly change my sex to meet your requirements. But since the way to such change has not been revealed to me, I have no recourse but to appeal to you to change your minds. Are you to tell me that one is as difficult as the other? Oh, my God. So she's basically saying, like, it's a lot easier for you to change your rule about, like, letting a woman into school than it is for me to change Change my my sex. So maybe you could just do that. Yeah. 
She did post postgraduate work at Bullet Hall School of Law at University of California in Berkeley, and her thesis for her master's degree was entitled The Right to Equal Opportunity in Employment, which argued that the right to work is an inalienable right. Mm-hmm. Because she had now constantly been rejected, oftentimes on the basis of her sex, yeah. uh, for equal work. Yeah. So um, she published that in the California Law Review. After passing the bar exam in 1945, she was hired as the state's first black deputy attorney general in January of the following year. That year, the National Council of Negro Women named her its Woman of the Year, and Mademoiselle Magazine did the same in 1947. Love it! In 1950, Murray published State's Laws on Race and Color, a determ- an examination and critique of state segregation laws throughout the nation, and she drew on psychological and sociological evidence as well as legal. So... It, it's really interesting what she did here. So this she had brought up when she was in Howard. So basically, like, there had been a decision, a Supreme Court decision in 1896 called Plessy versus Ferguson, mm-hmm. which upheld segregation on the grounds that you could be separate and equal. Mm-hmm. So most of her peers and professors at Howard argued that... Um, the way to get around this or the way to have this overturned is to find arguments for the equal part of that. Like, right. basically, to, to argue they that were not portion equal. of it. That we're yeah. not equal. But she said, she's like, we should argue the separate portion of it because I believe that if you are separated, it is inherently unequal. Agreed. So, yeah. But they were like, that's impractical. That will never work. Right. But it did work. She wrote this and basically actually did psychological and sociological studies that wow. showed how like damaging the separate part of that equation was. Totally. So Thurgood Marshall, then NAACP chief counsel and future Supreme Court justice, mm-hmm. he called Murray's book the Bible of the civil rights movement. And mm-hmm. her approach was actually influential to the NAACP arguments in Brown versus the Board of Education, which is what we were talking about with, you know, Ruby Bridges. Yes. And they drew from the psychological studies that addressed the effects of segregation on students in school. Yeah. And so the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that segregated public schools were unconstitutional. Good. I knew that, but... (laughs) Still good. Still Still good. good. In 1963, she became one of the first to criticize the sexism of the civil rights movement in her speech, The Negro Woman, in her quest for equality. In a letter to civil rights leader A. Philip Randolph, she criticized the fact that in the 1963 March on Washington, no women were invited to make one of the major speeches or be part of its delegation of leaders who went to the White House. So she wrote... I have been increasingly perturbed over the blatant disparity between the major role which Negro women have played and are playing in the crucial grassroots levels of our struggle and the minor role of leadership they have been assigned in the national policymaking decisions. It is indefensible to call a national march on Washington and send out a call which contains the name of not one single woman leader. Yeah. So... What she's saying is something that, like, I feel like black women have said for a long time, which is, like, black women run these grassroots movements. We're doing all the legwork on the front end. Like, and then we have somebody else um, being our spokesperson. Right, and yeah. basically taking credit for everything. And she's right, like, not to have anybody, no women got to speak at yeah. the March on Washington is insane. In 1965, she published her landmark, her landmark article, co-authored by Mary Eastwood, Jane Crow, and the Law, Sex Discrimination and Title VII in the George Washington Law Review. So, basically, she 
it drew comparisons between discriminatory laws against women and Jim Crow laws. Mm-hmm. So basically saying, like, yes, they're different, but, but all they of these... together. Right, and all of these laws, you're fighting for these laws against Jim Crow when there are also all of these laws that keep women from doing things and keep them separated, like, in the workplace and other places. Mm-hmm. So in 1966, she was the co-founder for the National Organization of Women. Love it. And she also attended Yale Law School in 1965. Girl! Becoming the first African-American to receive a Doctor of the Science of Law degree in the school. Insane. Later in 1966, she and Dorothy Kenyon successfully argued White v. Cook, which was a case in which the U.S. Court of Appeals in the Fifth Court ruled that women have the equal right to serve on juries. Okay. When future lawyer and Supreme Court Justice uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg wrote her brief for Reed v. Reed, a 1971 Supreme Court case that, for the first time, extended the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause to women, she added that Murray and Kenyon, she added them as (gasps) co-authors. That's so cool. Yeah, to her brief because she used their work so heavily whenever she was writing her brief. So it is yeah. wild to think that she's been a Supreme Court justice for that Forever. long. Forever. It's <laughs> crazy. For so long. Um, Murray served as vice president of Benedict College from 1967 to 68, and she left to teach at Brandeis University in 1968 to 1973, where she received full tenure as a professor. And in addition to teaching law, she actually introduced classes on African-American studies and women's studies, which were both firsts for the university. Wow. So she was like, she went to Brandeis and was like, we're going to do, we're going to do a whole overhaul here. Yeah, we need, we need to have this education Mm -hmm. available for people. Mm -hmm. Inspired by her connections with women in the Episcopal Church, this woman is insane. Like I I can't even imagine Episcopal Church. Where did he come from? (laughs) I I left out. I know this is long. I left out a lot of shit. Like she went to an Episcopal Church uh, whenever she went to North Carolina. You think even her school was an Episcopalian church uh, uh, school? So it was. She must have been one of those people that was so likable. Yeah. Because I feel like it's, you know, she's got friends in low places. You know but what I mean? She, like, you know, she it just has these connections with these people where she must have been not only so intelligent, but so likable. I think she was just kind of a force of nature because she was a very small woman. And yeah. I've heard her I looked even, at pictures of her yeah, while you were talking. I've heard her even described as, like, shrill, almost, like, in the way that she spoke, which lots of women are described as shrill. Yeah. shrill. But, um... And I've heard that some people, a lot of men, I don't think, liked her very much because she said what she wanted, you know, and said what she thought. But I think she was just kind of a force of nature. If she wanted to do something, she found a way to do it. Yeah, but the fact that she had the support... Yeah, she could bring people to her side. Yeah, Yeah. to me, makes me believe that she had something very special about her personality. Yeah, yeah, magnetic charisma. She wasn't just smart. She had something behind her that could uh, push her career forward. Mm -hmm. It's that it factor that you see, even in Hollywood and with actors, but this is more of an activist type. Yeah, I think it's the only way to accomplish as much as she has accomplished. She has something special about her. Yeah. So, um, she, when she was 60 years old, she left Brandis to attend seminary at 60. And she was ordained. That's dope. Yes. She was ordained in 1976. And after three years of study, uh, after three years of study, and in 1977, 
she became the first African-American woman ordained as an Episcopal priest and was among the first generation of Episcopal women priests. So she was the first black woman to be oh an Episcopal priest. Did you know that I got ordained over the holiday break? Oh, so you can marry people now? I can. Good for yeah, you. Yeah, it takes two minutes. There's a website. I know. I know. <laughs> My friend Trevor is officiating um, Haley's wedding, mm-hmm. and we were at the dinner table on Christmas, and he was like, you want to be ordained? I can ordain you right now. Yeah, like, yes, did. I would. I'm Thank like, you so yes, much. I am her mm-hmm. holiness, Madigan. Oh. Max is ordained, Ooh. too. He's Reverend very Dean nice. Maxwell. Yes, it's very official. Uh, when you sign up, it's like, you're hashtag ordained. And I'm like, what? <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> hashtag ordained, everybody. So hashtag easy. Ordained. I should do that before they make it more difficult, because I'm sure eventually I'll they will. I'll do it for you right now. <laughs> so for the next seven years, Murray worked in a parish in Washington, D.C., uh, focusing primarily on ministry to the sick. So in addition to the work in law that she did. Um, she was also a poet and an accomplished writer. She wrote a memoir called Proud Shoes, and it was oh. released in 1956. And this is fascinating. Again, we can't go into it, but it details her family's really complicated history with race. Uh, because, like I said, she was raised a lot by her grandparents, and right. her grandmother, Cornelia, was biracial. Um, her mother, so Polly's great-grandmother, had been a slave who was raped by not only her white slave master, but also his brother. So that's how her grandmother came about. She right. was a product of, of rape, um, slave rape. Yeah. So um, she was then raised, Cornelia was then raised by her father's sister and educated. So her slave master's sister took her in and educated her. And then she went off and married a freed black man okay. um, who was Polly's great-grandfather. Damn, I gotta read this memoir. Yeah, yeah. This so I want to read it, too. Yeah. It, yeah, so it's called Proud Shoes. And then she released a collection of poems in 1970. Mm. And on July 1st, 1985, Polly Murray died of pancreatic cancer mm. in the house she owned with lifelong friend Miter Springer Kemp in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So, okay, there's all that. I had a hard time kind of, like, fitting this in, but I think we should talk about it. Okay. There has been some speculation as to Polly's gender identity. Okay. In some of her writings, she alludes to feeling uncomfortable in her skin as a woman, and although acknowledging the term homosexual in describing others, Murray described herself as having an, quote, inverted sex instinct that caused her to behave as a man attracted to women. And then I apologize for saying go girl so many times during well, but, this episode. But no, like that's where it becomes difficult. There's actually yeah. a lot of writings that um, I'll touch on briefly that it, it's made it kind of hard because well, there, there have wasn't been the language back then. Right. There it. have been historians who want to refer to her as him, but she never explicitly came out and gave her pronouns. So we also don't know if we want to speculate. In that Too way. Much. Yeah, yeah exactly. We don't, we don't want to go against her wishes or yeah. what she identified as. Exactly. Right? But um, that is, you know, I, I then apologize for referring, saying, go girl, the whole time, because we don't know. <laughs> I mean, we don't we don't know, but I think she referred to herself as she, like, right. throughout her life. Right. And I don't think she had the language. That's exactly right. Exactly. Because she said that she wanted a monogamous married life, but one in which she was the man. But it's unclear if that means she wanted to be a man or if she just felt like her... Her role. And that her... The way that she felt towards women didn't feel like a lesbian relationship. To me, it almost sounds like she's more of like a gender-fluid type person. Where she's like kind of somewhere in between. Or it could be that her personality... 
um, could be, she felt to be more of the uh, role of what a man would be right. in a relationship. Yes. You know, she could have identified still as, um, with some female characteristics, mm-hmm. but maybe in relationships she felt a more, more masculine, masculine, typical role. Yeah, so to me she kind of sounds like gender fluid in yeah. a way. Um, the majority of her relationships with uh, were with women whom she described as extremely feminine and heterosexual. Like, she felt like, she felt like the women she was with were... She liked very, like, femme lesbians. Yes, and okay. the, who, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's basically, I think, what she's saying. I love this person. Yeah, like, she's interesting. She's so, so interesting. Um, she wore her hair short and preferred pants to skirts, and due to her slight build, she would oftentimes pass as a teenage boy. <laughs> In her 20s, she shortened her name from Pauline to Polly, which is more androgynous, mm-hmm. and at the time of her arrest for the bus segregation protest in 1940, she gave the name Oliver to the arresting officers. Um, she also, and this is, I think, where people start to think maybe she was trans, is she pursued hormone treatments in the 1940s to correct what she saw was a personal imbalance. And I don't know if that means that she's trans or if she felt there was a hormone imbalance that she thought that could be corrected. There's there's many ways to look at it. I don't know... I don't know the history of uh, hormone therapy for the transgender community, Mm -hmm. especially during that time. I don't know if that was a science that was available, but maybe there was something with her just knowledge and being so smart. Mm -hmm. That was a way for her to feel, um, you know, it could have been a psychological, you know, mental hormone imbalance, or it could have been something that she was working toward. Uh, when it came to her gender identity. Right. I mean, I do think that she felt something was physically not right because she even thought, like, that maybe she was intersex. Like, maybe, like, if they were, if she were to be cut open, she might have, like, She male. could have been, yeah. Right, yeah. She she actually, you know, kind of questioned that in her writings. Like, if I were to go and have surgery and if they were to cut me open, would they find male, like, male um, sex organs yeah. as well? You know, I'm, so I I'm think she so was... I'm so fascinated by mm-hmm. her thought process mm-hmm. being so today. You know what I mean? Right, but but obviously also coming from a place of not having the language or understanding and that no like, we And no information have. Yeah. out there for right. her to ever go off of. She just had this feeling inherently where she knew both with her sexuality and her gender. Right. But she wasn't able to put the words and the science behind right. it. Right, and she didn't... Like, it's why it's so important that we have these open conversations about, like, gender fluidity and stuff like that now so that people can know, like, there's nothing wrong with you. Like, no. if you're having these thoughts, you know, it's, there's nothing wrong with you. It's there's just, nothing There's nothing wrong with your identity. Right, no. Whatever you identify as is your identity. That's right. Yeah. Um, so historian Rosalind Rosenberg considers Polly to be a transgender man, and she says that... That's what she believes. She wrote an entire book biography about her uh, and, in fact, wrote whole passages using, you know, he, him pronouns. Yeah. Uh, But even she had to say, like, but it's I had to go back and change some of those because it doesn't feel right to speculate either. It's it's hard to know what the most respectful thing to do is. Right. It's it's not right to speculate, but it's right to be uh, respectful. And now I think what is good is that you don't have to use just a she or a him pronoun. There's they. Yeah, and and it's possible that had she been around today, maybe she would have gone by they. Well, and I wonder if that's the most respectful way to go about it in this day and age when Mm -hmm. referencing them is saying them or right, they. Right. Because you don't know. Maybe yeah. that's the most respectful way yeah. Yeah, it's in true. this day and age, you know? Yeah. We don't know. So. What? <sighs> what? What a life. What a... F- I mean, that's... Isn't that the consensus?
Hi, Madigan here one more time. I'm by myself because silly me forgot to remind Keegan that we should probably record some kind of outro. So tonight, instead of giving you the whole spiel, you know where you can find us. We're on Instagram. We're on Facebook. We're sometimes on Twitter. You can find us on Radio Public. Review and rate us places, whatever. That's not really the point of this episode. So we're just going to skip that. I hope you all enjoyed it. Stay safe. Rage on. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.